0: But you have to distill that down to something that makes sense for a six-year-old right so a lot of it comes down to (laughs) playing in the mud time is that most important ingredient that leads to the learning that comes down the road and sometimes it's not always super obvious right but the questions the kids ask can cook up all kinds of really cool conversations we can as teachers sort of introduce ways that we can make it more comfortable in a very child-centered way for them to start coming in contact with soil.
1: Hello and welcome to the Earthy Chats podcast where we're cross-pollinating environmental education ideas. I'm one of your hosts Jade Harvey beryl I'm joining you as the Outreach and Events Manager for the Columbia Basin Environmental Education Network or CBE, and the Outdoor Learning Store which is your one-stop shop for outdoor learning, equipment, and resources. I also run State on Science. It's an environmental education and consultancy business based in the interior mountains of BC.
2: And I'm your other host, Ian Shanahan, the general editor of Green Teacher, an environmental education charity that produces a quarterly magazine, books, webinars, PD, and the podcast, Talking with Green Teachers.
0: Let's get started. I think we do a really good job in schools of killing curiosity, right? And so I feel like my job in school is to reignite that, like get kids interested and ask questions and like notice and slow down and pay attention. So there's a lot of that that we, you know, we do a lot of that in the garden because it's such a natural space for moving towards complex thinking from a very simple idea, which is like, what is this bug? Or what's it what what's happening in the soil? Or we're just gonna add
1: Welcome to this edition of the Earthy Chats podcast. Uh, joining us today is the magnificent Megan Zenny. So Megan Zenny is a mum, teacher, master gardener, and researcher um, of everything outdoor play and learning. Her research interests include developing professional learning networks with in-surface teachers to bridge emerging theories with teaching practices um, that basically include unstructured outdoor play as the pedagogical approach. Megan piloted a rethink of how we deliver prep time in our elementary schools and has been teaching entirely outdoors in her West Coast school garden for the past seven years in all weather, all seasons, all of the time. Uh, Megan has over 25 years of experience as an educator outdoors, is a PhD candidate in the Faculty of Education at UBC and shares her learning as at Room to Play, Uh, it's her independent consultancy and on her blog at meganzenny.com uh welcome megan thank you glad to be here um so you know met you have followed your work for the longest time um you know we've utilized you as a advisor and just you know you've got so much going on but for those of you who aren't as familiar with your work um you know how did you come to teaching how long have you been teaching and and what inspired you to
0: do it Uh, I've been teaching for a long time. I think it's all I ever wanted to be. I had a lot of positive experiences in elementary school and in high school. So I think I just wanted to carry on being in school. (laughs) I've been in school since I was five years old and look, I'm 50 this year and I'm doing a PhD, so it's still, still going strong. I like school. I like learning. Yes. This is my 25th year of teaching. I've been teaching for a long time, pretty consistently in K to seven. Um, I've done non-enrolling positions. And so most recently, my job, like you said, in the introduction is uh, facilitating prep so that for anybody who's in a different jurisdiction, so in British Columbia, teachers receive 110 minutes of prep time a week. And so during that time, their students have to be with another teacher. So in our school, the kids come outside for two hours a week of instruction in the school garden. Yeah. So that's, that's my teaching stuff. And then as uh, I teach part-time now, I teach also at the University, at the University of British Columbia, I work with pre-service teachers, and I teach their methods course in PHE, so physical health education, helping them sort of understand the what play looks like in elementary schools. And then I work on different projects as a researcher. Yeah, talk about those, we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> Um, you don't do much then, just yeah, mostly, you know, yeah, just cool
1: sitting, relaxing. Um, <laughs> were you an outdoors kid? Were you always hands in the mud, doing all the things? And it just, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I was pretty lucky. My family was a very outdoorsy family. I grew up spending a lot of time in the back country in BC. We spent a lot of time in the mountains. We always had boats, so we spent a lot of time on the ocean. Yeah, I've I've grown up in British Columbia for sure. I'm deeply connected to the nature it sounds like yeah
1: so you said that you've been in education your whole life I had a similar feeling I loved school I I you know oh, they pick me i want to answer the questions I want to participate <laughs> it was uh, yeah I would like to really disruptive level, actually, at one point um but I, I always thought I was gonna stay in school, but I got sucked into a little bit of travel and then never went back to my postgrad studies, which they'd my professor had told me would happen if i left um but we all we follow our path um but at what point did you say okay i'm 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 an educator, I'm sharing things at what point did you say okay i want i wanna disrupt the status quo and and improve upon the the methods for what i'm doing
0: i think well because i i even all through university i worked as like a lifeguard and i worked at summer camps and i was always employed as sort of an outdoorsy person um and then when i started teaching you sort of realized really quickly that it's, schools have changed. Even 20 years ago, schools were changing. Um, And a lot of the uh, expectations I think that we had around like how learning happens in schools wasn't exactly as I thought it would be when I became the teacher. And so I realized really quickly that the relationships that I was having with students was challenged, right? It's hard to be, um, in that high, the hierarchy of the way we set up a classroom, which is like, I'm the teacher, I'm the adult, you're the student, you listen, I talk that, that just doesn't exist anymore. I mean, I'm sure there's some teachers that are still trying to make that happen, but everybody's unhappy in that situation. Right. Mm. So, um, yeah, I learned really quickly that, uh, when kids were outside, they were happier, they were healthier, they were easier to come alongside with. So, And we just disrupted that hierarchy. So I was no longer sort of the adult at the front of the room. I was this sort of safe adult that they could be with. And uh, I leaned into a lot of my sort of outdoor education background and played a lot outside with kids and then developed relationships throughout their play. And then we would come back in and do some work. But over time, I really just thought, why are we even inside? There was really nothing that we couldn't do outside that needed to be done inside, particularly in elementary school. It just was easier. Everyone was happier. I'm a better version of myself outdoors. Most of the Mm -hmm. kids are better versions of themselves outdoors. (laughs) I have a lot more patience. I find some of the sort of difficult things that we, you know, when you have large groups of children in a small contained space together, right? Um, some of those what could go wrong? Yeah, what could go wrong, right? And yeah, was, whose patients and- could be tested by that? I don't know anybody. <laughs> be that, right? so, yeah, so over time, I just realized, like, why are we even inside it? There was nothing that was better inside, really, ever. And I just, over the years... And then about, I guess it's about seven years I've been outside now. So eight years ago, I pitched to the principal that maybe we wanted to not have kids go to the computer lab for two extra hours of playtime on computer screens. That didn't seem to make sense when everybody had computers at home now. It made sense 20 years ago where the only computer in the community was at school. Didn't Mm -hmm. make sense anymore. And it was, you know, six foot by six foot and took 25 minutes to warm up. Right? It didn't make sense anymore. So I said, these kids need more time outside. And... Um, At the time, I was taking the class that I was an enrolling classroom teacher. I was teaching sort of in that grade two, three, four, five range. And I just said, why don't all the kids have this experience? And we built the garden. And anyways, I'd had a couple of really like specific kids that I'd worked with that just really were transformed by being outdoors. And I thought this is this is where I have to go, because it really was it was even the kids that didn't need to be outside, the kids who were fine being taught inside Um, It didn't hurt them to be outside, but it really was hurting a lot of the students that I was teaching, trying to force them to learn in a desk from a textbook. It just, it wasn't working for anybody. So by then I had enough experience under my belt to say, you know what, we're not doing this anymore. We're going to do it differently. And so now I just teach outside. I don't even have an inside space. I'm totally homeless in the school. You just,
2: No office. Nice.
0: I have like, yeah, we do actually have like a desk. We had a closet for a long time. And now we (laughs) have probably (laughs) done. Harry Potter's dining. She's the Harry (laughs) Potter. Maybe the Hermione.
1: Um, Wow. I mean, I just love it because I think, When I see students go outside, particularly those, you know, who might be labelled disruptive or difficult or uh, lack ability to focus or sit still, they are transformed. It's a transformative process to take them outside and give them the space, like the physical space, and mental space to to perform um, as themselves and and academically and physically and socially. Um, So I I love what you do. Um, You did one piece of really... Um, sort of, I think it's really important research um, that has sort of shifted the way people to think about play. Can you share a little bit about that? I've done a couple different studies. (laughs) Um, The most recent one, the most recent one is, (laughs) exactly, Um, the catalogue is huge. Um, The most recent one, I I can't remember when it was published, actually, because time has no meaning anymore.
0: Uh, Well, we did a study uh, where we looked at the barriers that teachers were encountering. From across Canada, we spoke with teachers and really dug into what their experiences were when they took their learners outdoors. So there's some, we if you, I don't know if you have notes for the podcast that, that listeners can look up, but yeah, we can add for sure. some links mm-hmm. to that if people want. Um, yeah, there's some along. nice infographics that came out of that study where we just looked at what are the barriers that teachers encounter and are they, can they be overcome by like the average teacher? And for the most part, there's a lot of barriers that are manufactured out of like Reactionary policy, rather than thinking um, about children and what children need and sort of rethinking where and how learning happens in our school. Uh, A lot of the barriers that exist are just around old fashioned ideas about what happens in schools and how kids learn and how teachers teach. So principals, of course, make a really big difference in the ability of a teacher to teach outdoors. There's systemic issues that exist at the school and the district. And of course, the provincial level as well, we could we could get into the weeds on that if you want. But it's there's there everything can be overcome is the bottom line. Any yeah, but so I, I work a lot like with thousands of teachers every year on how do we sort of shift the places and spaces where we're teaching? And how do we trans? Like, how do we? Um, how do we sort of transition to teaching outside and a lot of the yeah buts that I hear teachers say yeah but we have kids who don't have clothing to be that they don't have suitable clothing to be outside or yeah but we get really extreme weather here or yeah but I have a principal who wants me to teach math out of a textbook all of those there's um really clear examples um of how we can overcome that and actually I'm going to put a plug in for a project that I'm working on right now which is uh probably going to be available within the next year. We're just collecting uh, artifacts for this tool now, but it's um, in part, what's well, being done with the team at the Bursoni Lab at BC Children's Hospital. And so we're creating a third chapter of the Outside Play tool. And so it'll be just for elementary schools and there'll be uh, exemplars and examples of how teachers navigate a lot of the normal barriers to teaching and learning outside. Um, so we'll have teachers from all over the Canada submitting um examples and artifacts of how they do it and then there'll be a little a digital tool that teachers can access. So every time you hear that yeah, but you can say, Hey, I've got a solution for you. Here's how teachers yes. manage it.
2: <laughs> it sounds like a follow up episode in the offing.
0: <laughs> yes, please.
1: Um so you mentioned about outdoor learning, you talked about um, you built your gardens and that's kind of um one of the things we wanted to share with you um today. So we've got world soils day uh coming up on december 5th and you know i do soil stuff with kids i do soil stuff with older kids particularly and doing like full soil soil sampling and looking at different soil types and all these things and they're always like oh, getting muddy and go and touch things and i'm wearing my nice sneakers and then like the minute that they get that soil auger full of you know layers and stuff they lose their minds and it's so cool when i do all these tests with them and stuff why is learning about soil and growing learning through growing Become sort of something that you focus on and that you share a lot with your students?
0: Yeah. So, a garden is my classroom. So, I teach in a garden from September 1st to the end of June. And I think gardens are really a metaphor, you know, when we think about growth and change over time. And we think about like Carol Dwecksworth and the power of yet, right? Like, thinking about this growth mindset and gardens, like, they're just a metaphor for learning in general, right? Like, we have this soil, we put a seed in it. And a lot of children will expect that, like, where, where's the plant? Well, it's not germinated yet. And it's not grown yet. And it hasn't fruited yet. And it hasn't pollinated yet. And that it hasn't like all the yet, 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 yet. And we teach kids, like patience and time and observation skills. And so gardens in general are really rich, valuable spaces for learning. And I've said it so many times, and i 'll say it again here, but literally every concept, every big idea, every competency for education that we have in the k to seven space can be taught in a garden um, we don't need desks, we don't need classrooms, clipboards are helpful, sheds are helpful, but all of these tools that we have, ultimately what we need is a garden and what do we start with in the garden? What's the most important part of a garden? Like when a teacher says to me, I only have a hundred dollars in my budget to start my garden. What should I spend it on? My answer is always soil. Soil, right? <laughs> the soil is the most <laughs> important part of your garden. It's, it's literally the foundation. So when you're thinking about learning and growing with children in gardens, I think it's really important that we start with the soil. And like, I'm not a soil scientist. I'm not an expert in soil. But what I do know from decades and decades of working and learning and teaching in gardens is that it's really critical for not just children, adults as well, but for all of us to have relationships with our soil, right? Because if we want or expect people in our community to take care of and protect soil, they have to know it. They have to have a relationship with it, right? And like I live in Steveston so if you're familiar with the lower mainland in British Columbia we're situated right where the at the estuary right where the Fraser River discharges out to the Pacific Ocean so we have some of the most fertile soil on the planet geographically we're a we're a delta where it's all the deposit of the river has deposited over millennia and now we have an island that we live on which is technically below sea, sea level but we have really rich soil and so, you know, forty percent of the city of Richmond is protected by the Agricultural Land Reserve, which is a federal reserve, which started in the '70s by one of our local councillors who realized that thousands and thousands of acres of land were being redeveloped every year into housing and it's like suburbia, and that's not what we want to do with the most fertile soil we have on our planet because we want to be able to think about like concepts like food security and like, there's so much complexity when we start talking about soil. And so with little kids, we're talking less about the ALR and more about just getting our hands on the soil and understanding how soil is different than dirt, right? What is soil? What is dirt? One is living. One is not. What are the characteristics of living soil? And then doing all those explorations so that we can, we can learn about the soil that's in our community and and in our schoolyard they don't need to um, have soil samples from across the world they just need to be putting their hands in the soil that they have in their own schoolyard and examining that because it's going to be different the soil from a planter in the parking lot is different than the soil that they might have out in the field it's almost dirt half the time out those dust bowls out in the schoolyards right Mm-hmm. um and then the soil that they might have in a garden bed and then examining that and exploring that and getting to know that soil and learning the language and vocabulary of soil there's there's so much learning we can do with that
1: and even if you just go you know a few hours south and get into california for example uh, where their soil you know generally their their farming is 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 dying um their agriculture production is dying because their soil is dead it you know And there are processes where you can enrich soil and where you can care for it and steward it that, um, you know, when we used to small scale subsistence living, that used to happen and you would rotate crops and you would um, plant certain things together, right, as companions. And this one would keep the bugs that would eat that away. And and this one fixes nitrogen so that um, that fertilizer, natural fertilizer goes back into the soil for the next crop. And now what we do is, you know, we have an increase in population and we just decimate the, the natural <laughs> ecological system by just harvesting, harvesting, harvesting and not giving back and just pouring more and more chemicals in, in the hope that that will fix it. Um, and so that for me, like, like you said, they just need to learn about their place. And, you know, we're all about that place based learning when they're young. And then as they get older, they can tie this into this global thing of like, you know what? population is continuing to increase and we don't get any more land we're using more of that land for homes and other sort of industry and 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 um urban environments where are we going to grow our food and i think we locally had a, a had a thing i live um about sort of six hours east of megan but we had these catastrophic um sort of never before recorded size wildfires in BC Um, and then it was complete drought and then six months later we had um, like the one in 100 year floods Um, but it had happened twice in 100 years so it's no longer only happening one in 100 years anyway flooded destroyed thousands of homes um, and agricultural land and all of these things and um, what it also did was washed out the main highway that comes from uh, Vancouver um, inland, uh, and then the other road, the only other road that that could transport that goes up and north over from the city, was also destroyed in a landslide. So we we were literally where I live completely cut off, and from like where our main food sources come from and deliveries, and you know it, in seventy two hours the grocery stores were bare. Um, But so many people in my community grow their own food. And those of us who did and do, were not panicked (laughs) because we knew we had fresh produce in in the fall, in our gardens, in our harvesting, in our pantries. And like, for me, like trying to share that with people who perhaps haven't yet experienced any kind of climate catastrophe that has impacted them, like, I want to say to them, unfortunately, it's coming for you at some point. Um, And if we can get them like you're getting them in elementary school and just teach them to love it and care for it and do it, then then they won't repeat the mistakes, hopefully.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think if we want kids who care about global issues, like the complexity of the story you've just told is too much for a five year old. Right. It's overwhelming and it's frightening. But like that dandelion in the crack of the sidewalk is right here and it's right now. And we can talk about like the conditions that, you know, allowed that dandelion to grow and the bees and how we don't pick the flower because it's an early food for our pollinator friends. And even like the ideas of like a lot of what you were talking about were ideas of reciprocity, which I think you fully understand as a concept that when we're taking food from the garden the soil has provided the environment for those carrots and those lettuces and those peas to grow. And when we harvest the food and we enjoy the food and we eat the food, it's important that the finishing of that cycle is to care then for the soil so that it can then produce more food. And so it's not like the the learning in the garden doesn't end when we harvest the food, right? The cycle is complete when we put back into the soil all of the leaves and the nutrients. And like, you know, when you're growing your peas, you talked about the nitrogen fixing, like all of those legumes, right? We don't pull those out of the soil. We just cut off the loose bits and leave the roots in the soil because all of the bacterium and the work that's happening in those complex relationships that are happening below the soil, it increases the complexity of the the soil which increases the ability of it to grow food for us. So, yeah, there's so much richness in this and then but you have to distill that down to something that makes sense for a 6-year-old, right? So, a lot of it comes down to <laughs> playing in the mud and not being afraid <laughs> of dirt, right? Like oh, bugs. dirt is good, dirt is fun, bugs are our friends and just like I think we do a really good job in schools of killing curiosity, right? And so I feel like my job in school is to reignite that, like get kids interested and ask questions and like notice and slow down and pay attention. So there's a lot of that that we, you know, we do a lot of that in the garden because it, it's such a natural space for moving towards complex thinking from a very simple idea, which is like, what is this bug or what's it, what, what's happening in this soil or we're just going to add water and make mud and then we can start talking about some of the complexity of issues based on the play that they engage with which is emergent learning which is like a whole other conversation but we could talk yeah, about that too <laughs> we, we could just do a whole series with you step by yeah. step i do a lot of series actually yeah,
1: yeah i know and I you're very busy I don't stop. <laughs> well it takes one to know one for sure um <laughs> i just love your relationships the way you talk about building relationships it just makes me so happy
2: Hello listeners, this is Ian. I'm just here to let you know about the Talking with Green Teachers podcast, produced by Green Teacher. If you don't know who Green Teacher is, we are a registered charity in Canada, serving environmental educators in Canada, the US, and overseas. For only $32 a year, you can subscribe to our quarterly magazine, which has been running in North America since 1991. All proceeds go back into the organization to help us enhance environmental literacy among young learners. For more information, check out greenteacher.com. You can find Talking with Green Teachers wherever you get your podcasts. And you mentioned about reigniting that inquiry and that curiosity. And certainly within this crowd, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners, they're nodding their heads because this is just foundational to what we do. But you've really taken it a step further when it comes to soils by putting together and curating the soil study and inquiry kit so let's start with what is in the kit and how those pieces work together to bring about this curiosity that has been so blunted by our industrialized education system
0: (laughs) so i'm a big fan of story i love story Mm -hmm. and i think You know, in the Waldorf tradition, you just tell the story. You don't need to show the pictures for the story. The children can make the story in their head. And I have colleagues that are really good storytellers with a guitar and they tell music and they play story. Like they, they story can be done in multiple ways, I guess is what I'm saying. But in the kit that we curated around the Soil Inquiry Kit, we picked eight picture books, beautiful books that help sort of capture and help children imagine What might actually be happening in the soil with a lot of factual information, like a lot of them fall into that category of nonfiction text because there's a lot of information in the books as well. So there's there's eight books and then there's resources for hands on exploration and learning. So there's things like seed starting trays and soil thermometers and ways that you can explore soil and all of its sort of magnificence with young children.
2: And you teach mainly K to seven this kid is based on picture books could any of it be scaled up to high school middle school high school
0: yeah i think all of us like a good picture book right and there i mean we've looked it's funny i always i see a picture book when i do a scan of a picture book i can tell right away the books that were written by authors who didn't pilot this with a group of five-year-olds right there's just way too much text and there's way too much like talk time right Um, the best books have very little text or they have enough text. Like there's, there's sort of text and subtext. There's like the read aloud. And then there's the like sit and engage with the book one-on-one with a child or a child can sit and look at the book. So when you think about really good books for kids, they're ones that tell a very succinct story and they're beautifully illustrated. And I think we've chosen some really good ones for this kid. And yeah, they're suitable all the way up the age range. They're good for little kids. They're good for big kids.
2: for sure doesn't the very hungry caterpillar have like 10 words in it total like some ridiculous amount and it's like one of the best-selling kids books of all time
0: yeah repetition is popular yeah totally
1: i i'm a big fan of illustration because i think um that for older kids that that you know there's a lot of people that feel as they grow up like i'm not a science person or i'm not Um, that you know maybe if I'm more into the arts or I and and rather than those things being separate I feel like those kind of uh, resources can connect them in um, to their creative side and when we're creative we we do great work
2: you're here so when kids are engaging with this kit and with the stories and the equipment that's involved in it what are you hoping they get out of it I mean I know that's opening a a large box of many different options but what are some of the key takeaways that you're hoping that students engage with
0: well i mean it's you know it's not um it's not like one single thing i want kids to learn right Mm -hmm. so there's i mean when we think about what's the job of the teacher right the job of the teacher is to you know plan and facilitate and assess learning, right? So that's what teachers get hired to do. So from the teacher's perspective, what do I hope people get out of this kit or kids get out of the kit? I hope that teachers see how playing in the soil can actually tick a lot of those like assessment boxes, right? Like you can watch children play and then you can connect it to much of your curricular obligations as a teacher, right? Which in the kit, we sort of make explicit some of those big ideas or competencies that are being covered in the kit. So the idea that there's physical properties on earth, right? And that, you know, the earth is formed of like the soil is made from rocks and mineral and air and water and organic material makes up that soil and Here's the ways that the kit can address that and help you explicitly teach these skills that you need to teach your students, but also through a fun, playful way, right? So like as a teacher, I want teachers to feel comfortable knowing that they can teach the curriculum that they were hired to teach, right? But as an educator, like as an educator in the world, I want people to feel like they have a connection to the soil and to the garden and what they're growing into so we can create these kids that you know, I think it was Richard Louv or one of these uh, experts out there who said it the loudest, but you know, we can't ask kids to save the earth until we teach them to love it. Right. And so they just need time and time is this magical ingredient. So like uh, the educator in me wants to give a tool to teachers so that they have time outside in the soil, hands in, like just learning about it and spending time with it because time is that most important ingredient that leads to the learning that comes down the road. And sometimes it's not always super obvious, right? But the questions the kids ask can cook up all kinds of really cool conversations.
2: Yeah, and I mean, with this type of learning that's more based on facilitation and learning alongside students, there's less of that need for the educator to be an expert. And I'm sure you've probably had educators say, I'd love to teach this, but I don't know what's going on down there. I don't know what's happening In a hole where a bumblebee is hibernating have you ever come across that sort of approach or that barrier
0: yeah so definitely we hear that from teachers what i think is really powerful and i think and i say this all the time because i i myself am a master gardener like i'm an expert gardener this is what i do i'm really good at it but i'll always say the best school gardeners are the teachers who have no idea what they're doing. They don't even know what seed is what, they don't know what end to put in, they don't know, like they literally don't know what to do. And the reason they're the best school gardeners is because they have no preconceived expectation for how it's supposed to go and they position themselves as co-learners with their students. So they're going outside saying, I don't know how it's going to end. It's a surprise (laughs) and it's an experiment. And they model that inquiry process for their students in a really powerful way that gets everybody excited. When the expert gardeners come in and teach kids how to garden, the problem with that is that they tell everybody exactly how it has to be Mm. done. And there's no like room for failure. And literally everything I know about gardening comes from the mistakes that I've made, right? Like I've learned so much along the way from my failures and that's literally what we want to teach kids, right? Like the growth, the the growth and the learning comes from our failures. And that's why gardens are such magnificent spaces for learning, because there's so much opportunity for failure. And there's so much opportunity for theft and vandalism and all these like community challenges and struggles. Yeah, real life. That you- Right, there's just so many issues. Like the squirrels have been like just such a nightmare for us. <laughs> this savage. They are. <laughs> they're they're brutal. Here. Like we have beautiful cobs of corn, and you come back the oh, next day, and they're just like gone. Like they've eaten every dude. last kernel, and all the sunflowers, like all the things, right? But then they got to eat too. Te- yeah, and a skilled teacher. What you do with that is you turn it into an experiment and an inquiry, right? So we like laid it all out on the table and we like almost made it like a buffet and like which ones will they eat more and like we laid out the seeds and laid out the kernels and laid out all these different things and then did the observations like who's gonna come and eat what first and like turn it into an opportunity for learning because that's like what's the point of school if it's not to get kids excited and wondering and lifelong learning right so I don't know there's a lot to learn in a school garden
1: (laughs) I want to come and be in your school garden, for sure. Anytime, Jade. You know where to find me. Right
0: where the river meets the ocean. That's where I am.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I love a good delta. I mean, talk about a place (laughs) that ignites the imagination. That's not a sentence (laughs) you hear very often. I like a good delta. I know.
1: It's either a mathematician
2: or a... I grew up
1: on the Thames estuary, so I also love a good delta. And we, you know, everyone, um, or everyone... Lots of chefs that I know around the world use Maldon sea salt, and you can get it on the shelves here. It's come all the way from Essex, which is you know not the most salubrious place on earth, um, but our <laughs> salt marsh, um, you know where you get the inundation of the the tides coming in and mixing with the fresh water from the river, and it's brackish, and it just makes the best yeah. salt, and it makes the best salt lamb, like you know. Um, so we're estuary people. I like that new I like new it, yeah. connection. I love the estuary. <laughs> Mine empties out into the North Sea, though. It's not as attractive as the Pacific Ocean, perhaps. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> nice colour of brown. Everything brown. All of the resources featured in this podcast, plus many more, for students and educators alike, can be found online at the Outdoor Learning Store. Visit www.outdoorlearningstore.ca to view what's on offer. From waterproof notepads to binoculars and dip nets to sit pads, the store has you covered to take your learning outside. In addition, there are educator resource books to help you take your outdoor education to the highest level. That's www.outdoorlearningstore.ca, we're Canada's non-profit resource store. We are the Columbia Basin Environmental Education Network or CB, you can visit our website at cbeen.ca. We are the Regional Network for Environmental Education in the Columbia Basin, supporting a community of engaged and effective environmental educators by connecting them to resources, information, professional development, and networking opportunities. OK, so we, you know, I think we touched on it a little bit, but the fact is, is that soil study learning through growing, all of these things, um, you know, has these academic potentials, it has the ability to tick all those assessment boxes and give them these incredible skills. Um, I think, like you say, when you talk about leaving that dandelion, and you talk about the environmental um, needs of different parts of the ecosystem. Um, but is there more, you know, than just, you know, academic and the environment? Are there emotional,
0: social things that connect? Yeah, I mean, in British Columbia, we have something called the core competencies, which are attributes or dispositions for lifelong learning. And I think all of those are really easily and really authentically addressed through play and gardens and learning in gardens. But specific to soil, if we're thinking about soil, some of the other benefits that we have, like like when we think about the microbes that exist in soil, right we know that those are for anybody listening that's like what's a microbe you know it's something that's too small to see without a microscope right and so we have lots of them living in our soil and they help cycle nutrients through our soil right um there's fungi and bacteria um, are different kinds of microbes that live in the soil but there's a lot of evidence that shows that when we are like touching soil or breathing soil or playing in soil that we are breathing in those microbes right And that that actually produces higher levels of serotonin in our brain, which is like a really natural antidepressant. So um, it leads to reductions in anxiety, you have feelings of happiness and satisfaction. And that's why you often find gardening is so addictive, right? Or people talk about gardens being their happy place or like why as a teacher, I feel like I'm a better person when I'm outside because I've got my like, my you know my serotonin levels are being increased when i'm outside and so there is some science to that other than the air is fresher and there's just more room for everybody to move around but it's also really good for your wellness to be hands in the soil
1: and correct me for a moment but the physical thing as well of having um small doses or You know, there's good bacteria and bad bacteria and Mm, millions and trillions of, of bacteria and fungi within that soil. And actually, when you ingest little pieces of it as part of this process of interacting with it, it's much better for your immune system as well. We have that capacity to train our body to to have defenses against things in our environment that can make us sicker later on.
0: Yeah, and this is not my research expertise, this area, like the hygiene hypotheses, all of that is not my area of expertise, but there is some conversation in those research niches around, you know, a lot of our children are growing up in homes that are very, very sanitized now, and that there is some benefit, you know like our grandmothers would say, you had to eat your peck of dirt every day, right? Like the idea that being in the soil and dust and dander and all of that is actually, we've evolved over thousands and thousands of years, literally in the soil. And so our bodies are accustomed to and uh, want that connection with the earth. And so- Mm Uh, you know, we do get students that come in that have literally never been in the rain. Like They've gone, Mm. they get in their car, and their garage, and then they drive to the covered shopping center or wherever they're going. And then, you know, their first week of kindergarten can be a little bit shocking for them because, you know, I teach in the pouring rain. We teach no matter what. And so, and there's hands in the soil. And for some children, there's a huge adjustment period for them. Mm. But, you know, we'll give them paintbrushes and let them play with the the mud with a paintbrush and paint with mud and kind of just sort of warm them up to the idea that this is it's like a loose part right well that's a whole other conversation yeah, <laughs> the play. Mud is, like we're saying these words that are like a whole other podcast Ooh. yeah mud is a loose part and what is it it's really only limited by the by the imagination of the user and so we can as teachers sort of introduce ways that we can make it more comfortable in a very child-centered way for them to start coming in contact with soil. So mud kitchens are another example of that, right? I'm a huge fan of mud kitchens. And we talk about mud kitchens in this kit as well. There is actually a book called My Mud Kitchen is Read. And so there's lots of cool ways that we can, and very low cost, low barrier ways that we can engage children with soil and mud and just normalize time spent in dirt and being dirty and stuff
1: i think like yeah i i i see that in some kids who you know don't want to get dirty as well and that can even be coming down from the parents as well right um yeah but it, it, does it washes that- out
0: It does. It washes out. And a big, yeah, but on that is like when people say their kids aren't ready. So like on my website, we can put a link on your notes from this, this session. if you want, I have a whole blog Mm -hmm. post about like gear lending libraries and just making sure that kids have what they need to be successful and how you communicate that to families. Um, In this tool that I was talking about earlier on, I was, uh, there will be examples of how schools set that up so that Teachers out there can see that yes, it can be done. It can be done at very low or no cost. It really just comes down to if teachers want to do it because if they want to do it, it'll happen. There's a way around it for sure.
2: We can trademark that.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, if they're not
1: inspired by this, then
0: <laughs> yeah, shame
2: what can on you, you? do? <laughs> I feel like we're living through a moment with soils right now. I mean, there's been a lot written about it. I mean, Suzanne Samard's work on the Wood Wide Web And there was another book, I forget the author, it came out a year or two ago called Entangled Life, a book that came out even longer ago, The Hidden Half of Nature. Like it seems to be coming up a bit more. Am I just seeing what I want to see or is it having a bit of a moment or a renaissance, whatever you want to call it?
0: I think people are starting to come to some kind of recognition around the interconnectedness of humans like humans are a part of the natural system we're Mm -hmm. not separate from and i think a lot of the stories or the narratives particularly in the context of like colonization and extraction from the earth like all of these for hundreds and hundreds of years And depending on what part of the world you're talking about, it's thousands of years, this extraction from, and yeah, I think we're starting to realize that we're much more dependent and in relationship with the natural world than we ever were. And so these, like Suzanne's work, for example, and, you know, I think Robin Wall Kimmerer did a really good job of like helping crack open people's minds to the possibility Mm -hmm. That Western science isn't the only way of understanding the natural world. There's multiple layers of complexity to it. And yeah, so there's, I I think we're just, there's a good graphic I can send you if you want an example of how people are part of this natural world instead of apart from, we are a part of. So. I think I've seen that. It's like a, a web and we're yeah. just
1: one little aspect.
0: We of are it. like a little piece of the big web. We're not like at the top of the food, you know, the classic sort of food chain yeah, the pyramid, right? the pyramid. Mm. as the dominant predator, right? That really we have to sort of reposition ourselves as
1: we're so reliant on these things. I, for one, am one of these people that really had to shift my perspective as someone who did a science degree, who believed in, in the scientific method, in the peer review process, in the fact that, of course, well, they must have it right. Um, even though I'd been shown example of example where over time uh, they shunned people, someone like Paul Stamets, who's doing all this re- research in mycology, who didn't get a degree and they shunned him from the scientific community and you know in fact he's probably the most knowledgeable man on the planet um I've had to shift a lot of my understanding away from we know it all and the more I connect in with like traditional ecological knowledge and indigenous perspectives and the fact that this non-living and living thing is all nonsense because it all relies on each other flowing around and energy and giving back I'm like i'm on this it's, it's almost a spiritual journey in connecting and with soil when i do sit spots with my kids and i get them to look and just look at a bit of like a patch of soil that they see 100 percent they're going to see something crawling on it or moving on it or something you know they come to me with all of these stories just from that little square and three minutes depending on their age and like my mind's blown every time and so I'm really passionate about soil <laughs> um and you know but the work you've done uh, and the the things you have in your blog that um so it's at MeganZenny.com for anyone who can um to help people get out there if you don't necessarily feel like you're you're ready or that you're excited about it but don't um or have lots of earbuds um you should go and check it out because there's so much uh, out there to support you Stoked on science. Providing engaging, educational and fun programs across the Columbia Basin. Is your school or organization looking to develop your environmental programming, connect your outdoor time more deeply to the curriculum, or engage your students or teachers with unique programs that go beyond the basic science topics, like delving into the history of the earth, how it's changed and where it's going? If so, visit www.stokedonscience.com to connect for environmental education consulting or to book programs for your K 12 and adult professional development courses.
2: And in your many paths forward, what is next?
0: I don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up yet. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can relate <laughs> I to that what I'm very be well. Yeah, I mean, I've got several decades into this, you know, gig as a teacher. So I enjoy teaching. Those are sort of my, my favorite days of the week are the days that I'm teaching at the school, because it's, it's so uncomplicated. It's just joyful, right? It's just, it's just simple and fun. And I like it. uh, And it's, great it kind of powers me up again right for that so the grind of because right now i'm finishing the phd right so i'm in data analysis and then i'm writing up the phd so hopefully by this time next year i'll have something to defend Uh, and then i I know (laughs) five years of my life has gone into this yeah um it's you know it was a it was a personal sort of can i do this kind of project and you know i've done it and i'm getting there it'll it'll get done I don't know what comes next. Hopefully it'll still be something with actively teaching. I think it's a shame when, you know, we get so down the the role of expertise that we actually leave the role of teaching, because I think we forget really quickly the demands of teaching. Once people leave teaching and then they just go into like consulting, for example, they romanticize, I think what teaching is like pretty quick. So I, I feel like keeping, he- Keeping myself in teaching is important um, in order to support my colleagues with this work, but I don't know what's next. Hopefully some sort of research position, but not, I don't want to be an academic. I don't want to work at the university per se, but I like working with teachers and I like working with students. So something in the outdoor play and learning field. Watch this space. It's out there in the (laughs) universe. Something will arrive when the time is right. That's right.
2: (laughs) Any final advice? like a vital piece of information just like if you're going to take away one thing from this discussion
0: this is what you must know time time is the magical ingredient you got to clear your schedule it's so important for kids and it's hard because a lot of us teachers are kind of type a people that want to make sure we've got a plan and we know what's happening (laughs) and then we we want to to like intervene when they start doing things that are uncomfortable for us as adults right like they pick up the mud and they start throwing it at a wall like sometimes you got to let it play out right like right. walls can be washed there's hoses there's sponges and actually it's surprising to me how much kids love the cleanup of that sort of stuff right like anyways yeah. I think time is really important in this and time in the soil time in the garden time to just play outside I would say is the most important thing Um, really stepping back and letting kids play through whatever the conflict is and working it out and being there as a safe adult to step in when things get really awry. But in my experience, that very rarely happens for the most part. It settles down. It takes, I would say a minimum of 20 minutes for kids to be outside before they settle into what they actually want to be doing. And how long is recess at school? 20 minutes 25 minutes and they've just like started to figure out what they want to do and they just sorted out all the conflict and then you send them back out and they got to renegotiate it all again right um Mm. so I do find that time is really important giving them big big chunks of unstructured time to just play and then the learning just emerges on its own and then that's the job of the adult there is to really just weave in the curriculum that we are obligated to teach and report on to the play um and make that visible to the people that want to see it and that's like a whole other conversation but that's like you know that's that's the most important thing time lots time, of time yeah. yeah
2: we've lined up about six additional podcast episodes yeah. just in the course of this conversation. So-
1: <laughs> 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 that's it um but thank you so much for joining us in this space um world soils day is coming up december 5th for those of you perhaps that could be your first opportunity or a opportunity to go and get your hands dirty even if like me at the moment you might have to dig through some snow to find it um (laughs) just uh maybe maybe that could be a small piece of commitment that we could do um as a result of this and if you're looking for any advice inspiration uh, and support you can go to meganzenny.com and read the multitude of incredible blogs that are so accessible there uh, and we do have that really cool soil study and inquiry kit um, available in the outdoor learning store That um, yes features those books some tools equipment and some really cool lesson sparks from Megan uh, and her teaching partner Sarah Regan to um, get your, your imagination and that inquiry and emergent learnings fired up so uh, thank you so much for joining us and sharing all your expertise. Oh, thanks
2: for having me. That was fun. Yeah, thanks, Megan.
1: Thank you so much for joining us for this month's Earthy Chat. You can find the resources featured in this podcast at the Outdoor Learning Store. That's www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. You can also visit greenteacher.com for incredible educational resources and webinars and cbean, that's c-b-e-e-n.org for a range of environmental resources, including professional development opportunities, grant information, and green jobs. Lastly, you can visit www.stokedonscience.com to chat with me, Jade, about science workshops or educational consulting. Tune in next month for more cross-pollination of ideas and another fun, earthy chat. Also, Doctor Zenny sounds like you are going to be doing some magical potions. I don't and know stuff what I'm going to be doing.
0: Yeah. I'll be somewhere. I don't know what I'm going to do yet. I put it <laughs> out there to a few people, a few choice yeah. people. I said, "Hey, in September, I would like to be working full <laughs> time." I, yeah, yeah. Let's see
1: what happens when I'm an no adult time. next September. No I have yes. my PhD. Yeah.